this is the, uh, as noted here, this is uh, the annual uh, Maria Dachmanovich Leonard Memorial Lecture, which honors one of the students and then postdocs who was here in the Berry Center um, for her training and, as I think many of you know, uh, died in childbirth uh, six years ago or shortly after delivering a child. And we hold this annually at the, uh, the generous support of the uh, Dachmanovic uh, family. Um, Milos, uh, Maria's brother is here, and I'll have him say a couple of words at the end. But in any event, this is, we hold this annually to honor Maria for her uh, superb work. So uh, today, to honor uh, Maria, it's a delight to uh, introduce the third, or a third uh, Dachmanovich lecturer, who is Bradley Yoder, who is a professor of uh, cell biology at the University of Alabama. So I want to say thank you very much, um, first for the invitation and opportunity to come up here. It's a, a real honor for me. Today what I want to try to do is to kind of tell you a little bit about type of work that my group has been involved with over the past, I guess, 20 years now, uh, trying to connect uh, defects uh, in cilia uh, to disease states and developmental abnormalities. Today we're going to focus on two main areas, uh, one that has been probably the longest area I've worked on, cystic kidney disease, and then the second half we'll move on to uh, obesity and diabetes-related issues, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit of how they're actually uh, connected to one another. So, you know, when you start to think of psyllium, almost everybody thinks of these guys right here. Uh, these are the ones you find in the, in the ventricles of the brain. Uh, ones you can find in the, the lining of the tracheoepithelia. And they meet in a very uniform fashion. There's hundreds of those per cell. And their job basically is to take mucus and bacteria and stuff like that out of the lungs, clear them, swallow them, basically as a, a resistance to infection. Um, in the brain, they're involved in movement of cerebral spinal fluid. And I'll show you uh, some mouse data that shows what happens when that is messed up. Uh, it's some, some severe uh, problems caused by that. Of course, another one that everybody's very familiar with is flagella. So that's a modified form of uh, cilia, if you will. Uh, they're built the same way. So they're analogous structures. They just move in a kind of different fashion than what you would see on the trachea. And on uh, another more recent finding is that there's another form of psyllia, which was not appreciated until Nubutake, Hayakawa, and, and Hamada looked on this early embryonic structure called the node. And these guys beat like a propeller. So now we have three different types of motion here, um, and these actually have a critical role in development, as I'll briefly mention as we go. But most, now we work, my group works on all of these forms of psyllia, uh, but the one we are particularly interested in, the one I'm going to focus on almost exclusively today, are these guys right here. These are what are called primary cells, the one per cell, strictly in motor. And as Rudy had mentioned earlier, for many, many years it was thought that these things were residual and really didn't have any clinical significance whatsoever. Now it was known that things like, you know, of course, if you mess up flagella sterility is, is an issue, you mess these guys up and you get hydrocephalus and you get cranial infections. So, so for a long time it was known that motor cells were critically important. These guys were not so. 
Another thing, a thing that really intrigued me about cell is they come in a lot of different forms. Right? So not just that single little projection that comes off the cell. This is an example of uh, olfactory cilia on olfactory neurons. Here's a cilia off of the rods and the cones. And what I want to stress here is that these are critical sensory organelles. Basically, they allow you to interact with your environment. So defects in these guys have profound effects on, on life, quality of life, and, and I'll show you how you actually develop. The psyllium, if you look at it in a little more detail, you know, it looks like this membrane closed sac that has these microtubules that run up through the middle. But in actuality, when you actually look at the psyllium through ultrastructural analysis and so forth, it's an extremely elaborate machine. For example, down here at the basal body or transition zone region, you see these wonderful structures. Unfortunately, we don't know any of the proteins. We're starting to get some. My group works on a lot of it. Starting to understand what these proteins are and how they're uh, put together. And what we think these structures down here do is separate the cytosol from the cilia. And that allows the cilia to be a specialized signaling compartment. And mutations that affect this, for example, uh, Meckel-Gruber syndrome uh, genes, which I'll briefly mention, or nephronophthesis genes, uh, have a breakdown in that. <clears throat> what we can show in our C. elegans models is proteins that shouldn't be in the cilia are now in the cilia, or things that are, should be in, or restricted to the cilia now come out. Uh, so you need to establish that cilium as a very tightly controlled signaling structure. Now, it doesn't matter what kind of cilia you are, you're going to be constructed on this process called intraflagellar transport, or IFT. That was first identified in, in, by Gianni Perpino and Joel uh, Rosenbaum uh, at Yale. And what you're looking at here is the microtubules that go into the cilia, and you see these big blobs of proteins right here on EM. And if you look in things like Clamatomonas or Grunawi, and here's a flagella from that guy, you can actually see these things moving. Right. They move from the base to the tip and back down. What I'm going to tell you today is about, uh, about two proteins, actually mainly one protein called IFT88, and it has a critical role in making up that IFT particle or that IFT rat. And when you disrupt that, what happens is you no longer have this elevator machinery to bring things out to build the cilia, to maintain the cilia, and it collapses, so the cilia disappear. All right, so that's going to be the, the main workhorse we're going to talk about is IFTA. And so this brings me into what made me interested in cilia in the first place. This is a mouse uh, that was generated when I was actually a postdoctoral fellow in the Rebojic's group at uh, And he was doing random insertional mutagenesis screens in mice. Um, this was back before the genome project was done, so you had no idea about sequence. And basically, his idea was you had a piece of DNA, you injected it into the mouse egg, it integrated into a gene, caused an interesting phenotype. Now you have a handle to go in and actually clone out the gene. Right? So that was the goal. This was one of the mice that came out of that. Um, it was originally called TG737, so you may see in the literature of that. It stands for transgenic number 737. That's the 737th line we made in the This is the mouse next to its brother. And you can see right away, he's not a happy guy. And it turns out that this is a hypomorphic mutation, so a partial loss of function mutation in this IFT88 gene. And what really excited me about this mouse, is before we had any clue of what it actually did, is that we had phenotypes in actually about every tissue that we wanted to look at. You have cysts, and this is a pretty relatively minor cystic phenotype. Some of these animals get massively cystic. You have cystic lesions in the kidney, so the controls are here. You have uh, a polarity, you can't very see it very well here, but 
a massive proliferation of an immature cell called a biliary uh, or a, uh, an oval cell uh, in the liver that goes all the way around the triads here. Uh, you have severe pancreatic problems. Right? So what you're left with in the mutants is abnormal ducts and islets, but all the ACE and I cells disappear. You now know that the reason for that is they get something that is similar to pancreatitis, except they don't have the inflammation component. What it is, they get premature uh, activation of their digestive enzymes, and basically they digest away the rest of the pancreas. So severe pancreatic problems. These mice are blind, as you might expect, because you can't make the uh, cilia on the rods and cones in the eyes. They have severe cerebellar hypoplasia, so they have ataxia, they can't walk, they can't maintain balance, and so forth. Severe hydrocephalus. Skeletal problems, which also includes uh, polydactyly, uh, extra teeth, cleft palate, sutures in the skull, you know, fuse normally. And the list goes on. So critically important gene, and, you know, when I started this postdoctoral project, I was like, cool, this has got to be something that's very, very essential for something going on in the mouse, right? Lo and behold, I had no clue who was actually going to be involved in actually building a primary cell. And back then, I was one of the masses, and I didn't believe the textbooks that said primary cell didn't do anything. And I think this mouse has kind of made a big change in how we understand that. We also made a complete loss a null mutation, uh, and this animal is never born. So the one I told you about, the hypomorph, depending on the genetic background, will live up to about weaning um, on more outbred background, they can live two or three years in full life, but they have all sorts of other problems. The true null animal, in contrast, dies at about nine, nine and a half days of age. And what you're seeing here is the mutant next to its heterozygous controls. I don't know if you can appreciate that there, but the neural fold never closes, and the neural tube is open. Um, and they have this wonderful phenotype called situs inversus, or a reversal of body right? or head ataxia. You can see this by in situ, so this is in that mouse embryo looking at it. Right? So the head folds are here, uh, and what you're looking at is the expression of a gene that is normally, two genes normally expressed only on, the, on one side of the embryo. If you look at our mutants, they are bilaterally expressed, not expressed at all, correctly expressed on the opposite side, so it's completely randomized. So this was kind of a surprising result. Uh, we've done a good bit of work on this left-right problem, uh, working on more subtle mutations in different genes. So that's one of my projects in my group, or goals of my group, is to try to understand the role of different genes in this process. And this is a mutation uh, just in, a, in gas A. And now this one is not required to build the cilia, but it's required for the movement of cilia. And what we can see here is that the cilia on the node, and I showed you this movie just a second ago, but these guys be, and the idea is, from groups like Hamada and Hirakawa uh, and Martina Bruckner, is that these concentrate some kind of signal, either a calcium or a morphogen signal, to the left-hand side of the embryo, and it tells you, your, your embryo how to make left and how to make right. When those cilia don't beat normally, it's determined randomly. So here's an example. You can see that the, the stomach on one animal should be on the left-hand side. In about 50% of these mutants, it's actually on the opposite. And you can see the same thing in the direction of the heart. Right? So this situs inversus. If the whole body plan is reversed, you're fine. The problem comes in when you have the heart on one side and the lungs on the other, and it, it just the heterotaxia problems, <coughs> the problems are not viable. And in humans, there's a disease called Cartagener syndrome, which is a defect in motile, mobile forms of cilia that is very similar to this type of, of phenotype. So my group has been spending a lot of time trying to connect each one of those phenotypes that I told you to a molecular or cellular pathway. What is the cause of these 
uh, feeding times. For example, I said that these animals get skeletal problems, extra toes, extra feet, cleft palate, all this type of stuff. We now know uh, from studies that come out of my group, as well as Catherine Anderson's group, Jeremy Ritter's group, is that the hedgehog pathway is probably responsible for almost all those skeletal defects. Uh, it turns out that components of the hedgehog pathway, like patch preceptor, localizes to the ceiling. Um, and when that hedgehog binds, patch goes out, smooth and comes in, it activates the glee transcription factors, and that uh, induces the pathway. You take away that ceiling, they can no longer sense the hedgehog signals there. And as a consequence, you get things like this. Uh, some of these animals who end up with about 10 toes per kid. So big expansion of the limb. Neural tube closure and patterning defects. And it also explains the cerebellar hyperplasia that I was mentioning earlier. We also have seen defects, we're trying to understand defects in motor cilia. So this was one of the, um, the major phenotypes you see, how these animals can survive with that amount of ventricular expansion, I don't know. And it turns out that these cilia lining the ventricles really expanded here, but you can see them there, there, over here, and there's nothing down here. They're involved in moving cerebral spinal fluid through the circulatory system uh, in the brain. And when that doesn't happen, for example, in the ORPK animals, you see the cilia are still stunted and malformed. They don't beat normally, but they clearly don't uh, organize fluid flow. Sorry, blocking your view. Uh, fluid flow through the, the ventricles. So basically why I showed you all that is what I want to convince you of is that the psyllium is such an important organelle because it actually is a center, a hub, a signaling hub that is important for integrating many, many, many different signaling patterns. I showed you a few examples where it's involved in generating fluid movement associated with hydrocephalus. It also responds to fluid movement. So it's a mechanosensor, which I'll mention briefly. It regulates the hedgehog pathway. It mediates calcium and psychic AMP signaling. Data suggests, although controversial, that it's involved in canonical wind signaling. And importantly, there's a ton of G-protein-coupled receptors that are actually specifically targeted into that signal. And this will become more important when we start talking about some of the obesity uh, issues that I've used to myself. Right. So um, being more of a clinically oriented group here, you may ask, well, does this actually have anything to do with human biology whatsoever. And I would say probably up in to about 10 or 12 years ago, people would have said, yeah, yeah, it's involved in respiratory problems, it's sterility and stuff like that. Well, it turns out that ciliary proteins have now been implicated in a wide spectrum of human disorders, now collectively called the ciliopathies. Um, this includes things like PKD, or polycystic kidney disease. That's a disease that will hit about one in 500 individuals. So it's more common than CF. Very common disorder. Uh, very clinically important disorder. Cost to the, the healthcare system is immense. But here are some of the phenotypes that I mentioned um, that are seen in human diseases. If you look through these, you'll notice that many of those are the same type of phenotypes I talked about in the original IFT88 mouse that I just mentioned. Right? The one I didn't mention there is obesity. You know, what's the connection between psyllium and obesity? And the second half of this talk will come back and hopefully address some of that issues. So this is just kind of a, a, an example of the disorders. They can be very severe, such as Meckel's-Gruber uh, syndrome, which is not viable. It's neural tube closure, patterning defects, left-right axis problems, cystic kidney disease, skeletal problems, and so forth. So that's the more severe. 
all the way down to the less severe, if you will. I mean, these are not diseases you ever, ever want to experience. Cystic kidney disease, <coughs> massive obesity with sensory defects. Uh, these guys also, Barty Biddle syndrome, also have uh, cysts, uh, mental deficits, and all sorts of stuff. But the point here is that defects in the cilia have now been attributed, affect almost every tissue and organ system in the body. So trying to understand what these things are doing or how they're built or the signaling pathways that go through that, I think is an absolute critical uh, clinical question. And so now to get into this a little bit, uh, like I said, one of the main areas uh, that we work on is cystic kidney disease. And I'll tell you how this kind of connects to the obesity phenotype uh, in a second. So this is human ADPKD, dominant polycystic kidney disease, huge fluid-filled cysts. Uh, in the kidney, if you look in the nephron, there's one cilia per cell with a few exceptions. Uh, you can actually see those in this image here. Uh, these are intercalated cells involved in acid-base uh, regulation. These are principal cells. Each one has a single psyllium off of it, except for the intercalated cell. And the question was, what are these things doing? Right. And the model was put out, goodness, about... It's hard to believe that's been 11 years ago now. Uh, this is when the, the cilia field started to really take off. Um, when Ken Springs Group at the NIH proposed that the cilia was actually a mechanical sensor. These guys don't move. And his idea was that if you put fluid flow across the surface of these cells, you deflect that cilia, you elicit some signal that is required to maintain the normal nephron. Uh, and when that's gone, you get these massive cysts. And he could actually show that, that bending that cilia elicits a calcium Right. Another model that came out from a couple years, well, actually about 15 years later, so it's taken us this long to start to get to, to some of these ideas, was that the cilium actually may play some role in regulating how a cell divides. If you think of a nephron, all right, if a cell divides along the axis of the nephron, what happens to the nephron? It gets longer and longer and longer. But if the cell now divides in, a, in an abnormal way and goes this direction, now you get cysts. So what, new, what uh, Fisher et al. were able to show is that in the cilia, or sorry, in the cystic kidney disease mutants, this division is mainly going in the wrong direction. All right? So wild-type animals, they go this direction. Cystic mutants, they go that direction. All right? So that's kind of the, the state of where we were. And we wanted to start to study these in a more specific way. Uh, namely, we wanted to get away with all the developmental defects that we saw in these animals and then study this in an adult. Right, so what we did is we made a conditional allele of IFT88. We also did it with a, a kinase in that KIP3A, which is involved in movement along the cilia. It's the motor protein that goes along with this guy. Made a conditional, and we're using, in this case, a tamoxifen-induced CRE. Uh, the CRE is driven by actin, so it's systemic. But now we can come in in the adult, hit it with tamoxifen, lose the cilia, and say, well, what happens? So um, James Davenport, who was a MSTP a student, a medical student, a PhD student in my group, did this, and he induced it about eight weeks of age, let him go for six months, came back and showed me this image. I was like, that can't be, right? How can something that has such an important role in everything that we've looked at not get cysts at all. Especially if the idea was that this was a mechanosense, right? That detects fluid flow. How can you go six months after cilia are gone, and no cilia are gone, we're going, going in, and they don't come back. When you take away FDA date, they can't come back. 
So we went back and we injected in newborns. Lo and behold, what you'll see here is just a massive cystic kidney. You can compare that to a wild type. Massively enlarged, non-functional kidney. Which had us a little bit perplexed, so we went and did a little bit more, and we did the eight-week-old induction. In this case, we let them go for almost a year. And what you'll see is they do get massively cystic, but it's much more focal. It's not everywhere. Uh, of course, this kidney is, is pretty much non-functional anymore, and there's one huge cyst right there. But this told us something was going on between here and here that regulated how rapid cysts were formed. This would be clinically very important, right? If you could somehow figure out the mechanisms of signaling pathways that controls the rate of cystic disease for you know, patients that have this disease, if you could just prolong that, that would be one. Less time on dialysis, less time to, to renal transplantation. So I had um, James and my group go in and do a very, or sorry, Neeraj Sharma took over this project, uh, postdoc, doing time course, saying, where does it switch from this real slow, or sorry, this real rapid cystic program to this very slow cystic program? And what he found was a clear break-off between P11 and P12, that it switched. So something is going on right there that says, let's go at a much lower rate. So we've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. Unfortunately, we don't quite have the answer yet. One of our models was that it was going to be a proliferation effect. So the kidney is continuing to develop in the mouse out to about P14 or so. And if you look at just proliferation during that period, at about that same time that we saw this big switch, you saw this massive drop in proliferation. Right. Another thing that happens is, so right, let me see if I can go back here. So what you might imagine if this is proliferation, if you combine this with the oriented cell division issue, so maybe what's happening is you need to have cilia loss, misorientation of cell division in a proliferative environment for this to happen. Right? If you're not in a proliferative environment and you have misoriented cell division, you know, one or two cells go the wrong direction. Not a big issue. Yeah. The other thing that is happening, and this was a study done by Greg Gimeno's group at Johns Hopkins, is that there's a massive change in transcriptional profiles that are going on in the kidney. Right? So you go from genes involved in the developmental program to induction of genes that are required for the normal function. So maybe it requires that cilia loss occurs in a immature kidney. So these are the type of models that we were trying to, to get into. Um, and one way we wanted to do this was to basically take these adult kidneys and injure them. So do ischemic reperfusion. What that does, it does a couple of things. Um, first of all, it causes massive proliferation as part of the repair process. But it also causes dedifferentiation and inflammation. So what we're trying to do is take the kidney back to an immature state. And lo and behold, when we did that, in these adult-induced families, within three weeks, you could start to see cysts. All right, so we've been able to reprogram it from the slow to a more rapid cystic uh, model. So here again, this is what happens when you injure them. You look at proliferation. There's a massive amount of proliferation. In the mutants, that never comes back down. In the controls, it comes back down as part of the repair process. So something is going on here, and the idea was maybe it's this combination again. 
proliferation, older cell division. The problem is, when you do ischemic reperfusion injury, you do tons of damage to the kidney. So what we wanted to do now, what we wanted to set up, was a approach where we could keep proliferation really high in the kidney, but not cause all this damage. So we took advantage of a uh, uh, transgenic animal, um, generated by uh, Van den Heuvel at Kansas, which is Cux-1. Some of you may be familiar with that one as being the transcriptional repressor or activator that regulates genes like FTO and phantom. And it was the two genes that have been most tightly associated with uh, obesity uh, in humans in GWAS studies. This was completely not planned on our part um, uh, when we used this transgene. We started this way before those GWAS studies were done. But anyhow, what we wanted to do is use this Cox transgenic, and what it does is it, it is a transcriptional repressor of a cell cycle kinase uh, inhibitor that when you overexpress it, it induces proliferation, it keeps proliferation on. And Greg has been able to show that when you do this in the kidney, the kidneys get larger, but they don't get cystic. So our idea was, let's take these Cox transgenics where you have you know, four-fold increase in proliferation over a normal background, Take away the cilia in those adults. Now, if it is proliferation that's driving this, our model would predict that you get rapid cyst formation. Right? Uh, so we did that. And so this just shows you that we get a large increase in proliferation predominantly in the proximal tubules. And importantly, that is the same cells that are affected by ischemic reperfusion injuries, mainly proximal tubules. So it's a good analogous model to study this. Unfortunately, what we found is that there was no increase in cystic disease. So this argued against proliferation as being the primary driving role uh, behind this. So we're still, I would have put money that this would have been right, so that's why I'm not betting man. So we don't believe it's going to be proliferation, so I guess now we have to move over to transcriptional changes, dedifferentiation, and this other one called, a key player called inflammation. Because if you look at the proliferation in these guys, we notice something very different. If you look in the IR, this ischemic reperfusion, most of the proliferative cells that you're going to see are actually in the interstitial between the tubes. With Cox, it's all epithelial in the tubules itself. So this is a marker for uh, proximal tubes. These are likely to be infiltrating inflammatory cells, macrophages and so forth. So we're going in genetically and now trying to inhibit the inflammatory response in this and saying, can we correct the cystic, the rapid cystic kidney disease uh, program? Um, unfortunately, this happens often in science. Somebody kind of beats you to this story. Uh, Lloyd Cantley's group has noticed this as well. Uh, and this is a marker for macrophages. These are two big cysts in this model. And you'll see that there's tons of those infiltrating macrophages. If he feeds these mice um, a compound that is actually toxic to macrophages, so macrophages will engulf this, it kills and he can show that there's a significant improvement in the renal function of these cells. So we're taking a genetic approach, which is always much slower uh, and more costly, uh, to try to confirm this in our models as well. All right, so now that's kind of the cystic kidney disease. Now, here is the other major work that's been going on in my group, which is the obesity. And this has kind of been, the, you know, what is the connection between cellular and obesity? I would have never predicted that at all. Right? This is kind of the, the model that we're trying to generate here is the, you know, how is Bardet-Biddle syndrome or Ulstrom syndrome 
um, which are known ciliary proteins, result in uh, obesity. So I had said that we made this adult-induced model with this actin creep. We didn't get six, which was really, really, really disappointing when we first looked at it. But when he first brought this, uh, James first brought this animal down to me, I said, oh, it's going to have cysts. Look how big its flanks are. The cysts are huge. It's going to be wonderful. And then we opened it up and fat everywhere. <laughs> All right, but no cysts. So it's like the draw. So what we did notice, though, at eight weeks of age, if you induce ciliary loss here by tamoxifen and dex, within a week or so, two weeks in this particular, three weeks in this particular animal, or set of animals, you start to see this divergence of the body weight. And they will get significantly larger than their so they become obese. Right, so this is taking cellular away throughout the whole adult animal. So why do they get fat? Um, well, not surprising. It's because they eat too much. Right? So this is the uh, food consumed by the controls uh, over the week. This is what we're seeing in our cellular mutants. Right? So they eat about twice the amount of food that a normal animal should eat. Uh, however, if you do what's called pair feeding, experiments, which I don't need to explain to you guys, but you feed them the same amount that a normal mouse would eat. They don't get that. So this would argue that it's not a base metabolism defect. It's a behavior abnormality that these guys have lost their ability to sense that they're full. So a satiation uh, defect is what we're going If you look at uh, glucose levels or insulin levels, uh, those are markedly elevated, particularly insulin. Uh, all this is corrected when you keep them lean. Right. So, if you do glucose challenges and stuff, so forth, if they're not fat, they handle it very well. If you do it when they're obese, they don't handle it so well. Right. So, we would argue that this is a classic type 2 diabetes type phenotype that we're developing these animals. So, if you keep them lean, they're fine. If you make them fat, they don't do so well. They also have significant upregulation of leptin, and that's, again, for this group, I don't need to explain that, but that's uh, kind of expected when you become obese, right? Leptin is a hormone produced by adipose uh, that goes across the blood-brain <coughs> barrier, interacts with the hypothalamus as well as many other uh, nuclei in the brain uh, to regulate feeding response, mainly through the POMC neurons, and we'll come back to that in a second. Right. But if you keep them lean, then the, the leptin levels drop back in. So what this is arguing is that all of these blood chemistry stuff that we looked at is a secondary consequence of them becoming fat, not the primary cause of them becoming fat. So we ask the next question, the obvious question, where in the body are cilia required to regulate satiation responses? Right? So before we took it out, everywhere. And as a cell biologist, I, you know, in a feeding behavior, naively said, oh, it's got to be the brain. It's got to be the brain, right? Not knowing much about obesity at that time. So we went ahead and crossed it to a synapsin 1 group, which would take it out throughout the whole CNS. And when you do that, you get these guys right here. Uh, the record that we had was about 85 grams, uh, whereas the controls, you know, it normally there and you get to 40 so well over twice the size of a normal animal. And this is on a, on a breeder's diet, so 9%, 10%. Um, so now we know it's a defect in CNS, right? So then we 
get the next question is where in the CNS is this happening? Uh, again, naively, I thought, oh, it's going to be a hypothalamus coming out of Rick Wojcik's group who was looking at a beauty, and you know, that's kind of the mental thought that was going on there as well. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, leptin is this hormone that comes from fat, interacts with POMC neurons uh, to release alpha MSH, binds to uh, the myocortin receptors, high order neurons, and says, I'm full, stop eating. That's kind of a pattern. On the other side of that are the AGRP uh, neurons. And the idea is that they produce an uh, inhibitor of that interaction that basically prevents alpha-MSH from telling you pool. Right? Importantly, if you look at those two neuronal populations, believe it or not, neurons actually have a psyllium. Some people find that actually shocking. Um, they each have a psyllium on one, and it comes off the cell body. So the question now becomes, you know, is it in the hypothalamus and is it in either of these two groups of neurons? To address that, we uh, were given a, a Cree animal from Greg Barsh, uh, very nicely, POMC Crees, which are expressed in those POMC neurons in the hypothalamus. We also did the same experiment with the AGRP Cree. Right. And what we found is no effects whatsoever when you take silly off of AGRP neurons. However, when you take it off of the POMC neurons, so we're comparing the males to the females, you will see right away that there is a role for the psyllium <coughs> on the POMC neurons in regulating females. So then the next question is, well, what is the pathway that's actually responsible for this? Again, naively, what we were going directly towards was leptinness, directly out of my influence from Rick Wojcik's group. Um, we have tried very difficult, very hard to connect the leptin receptor to the psyllium. And I know some people, I think Rudy has some data to say that there's a connection. We have not been able to see that yet. So I really look forward to some discussion on what's going on here. Uh, regardless of whether we treat them with leptin, we fast them or so, uh, we basically see this pattern. Again, the leptin receptor antibodies and that type of stuff are not the best in the field. Uh, I know some of you have probably experienced that as well. So the question is, okay, the receptor's not there. Well, maybe there it's required some, some other aspect of the pathway. Um, how do we get to address it? So when we were trying to do this, there was some data uh, that actually supported leptin's role in bacilli-induced obesity models. And this came out of Val Sheffield's group, looking at the bardi biddle syndrome mice, the BDS mice. And what he was able to show, so this is food intake, um, and what they're going to do is to inject leptin or vehicle and ask, is it able to repress the feeding response in these animals? And so if you look in a wild-type animal, it works very wonderfully. You look in any of the BBS models that he was working on, so BBS 2, 4, and 6, there's no response to leptin. So this went to the idea that maybe leptin resistance is at the heart of the cilia obesity models. One of the problems you have when you're working with these fat mice is that insulin or leptin levels are very, very high. <clears throat> right? So adding some more leptin, yeah, maybe not work. So what Val did was to calorically restrict these guys. To put them on a strict diet, uh, get them to come back down to normal body weight, normal leptin levels, and then did the leptin test. All right? So right after releasing them from caloric restriction, tested for leptin response, and what you'll see is there, compared to the wild type, they do not respond. So again, this would support that there is a connection between leptin and psyllium. All right? 
we had been taking, um, again, the slow approach, that seems to be the way my lab does things, um, genetically. And what we wanted to do, since we had an inducible model, right? we don't have a congenital mutant that is mutant from the beginning. What we can do is we can get everybody at the same age, about eight weeks, we can induce cilia loss here by tamoxifen, wait one week, and what we know at that point, so they're gone, they are hyperphagic, but body weight has not changed. Okay, we can test for leptin sensitivity there. We then allow these animals to become very fat. We test the leptin resistance there. We then calorically restrict them and test it again here. So we're doing a longitudinal study, same mice, and looking at leptin sensitivity over that period of time. Just to convince you that the cilia are gone, so this is looking in the brain and hypothalamus uh, with a marker called AC3, adenylate cyclase 3. Right? You'll see it nicely in the cilia. Of, of all the controls, you look in the mutants, and it's gone. So what you're seeing here is not cilia. AC3 is not a cilia marker. It's just a protein that happens to be in the cilia. It's still expressed there, but those are not cilia. And we can come in with many other markers for the IFP proteins and actually show that that's the case. So the cilia are gone. All right. Now comes the question is what happens. So if you look at the body weight during that period again, time point one, there's no significant change in body weight. Time point two, Massively obese, bring them back, no difference, right? Look at fat mass, same thing, uh, serum leptin levels as well, right? So no significant difference there. So what happens when you start testing these guys? I think that should be the next one. There we go. So we noticed at time point one, right, <coughs> that in the mutants, so this is vehicle, this is leptin. Cilia are gone. They're hyperphagic. They're not fat. Uh, leptin levels are not up. They respond just as well as the wild types do. Right. Time point two, wild types, it's really not a time point two because they're not fat, they respond just like they do here. Mutants are resistant. All right. Well, that might be expected because they have leptin that is way off the charts. Right. So now we calorically restrict these guys, and lo and behold, you calorically restrict them, they now respond even better than the wild types to leptin with regards to food intake. So what our data would argue is that leptin resistance is not, at least currently, the mechanism uh, involved in this. If you look at markers downstream of leptin, right, so in this case it's FOS, we also are doing uh, phosphostat and SOX3. Um, so when you hit with leptin, should induce CFOS. We see that right, um, at each one of these times. Another parameter that leptin is thought to regulate is uh, thermoregulation. So if you look in a leptin animal, uh, you put them in a cold room, their core body temperature drops very, very rapidly. And actually, we have to remove them from the cold room at that point, for a period that they won't survive the the experiment. Our animals behave absolutely normal. So they don't have that. Now, the temperature control, thermoregulation may be completely independent of the effects on food. It may be a different group of neurons and so forth. Um, but we do not see the similar type of thing. So this led us to ask, well, maybe the BBS mice are actually sensitive to leptin if they're done before they become fat. Right? And so what we did, so and, and to think about that, there may actually be a fundamental difference between the BBS and the IFT mutants that we work with. Right? The BBS mutants still have a cilia. Right? 
the IFT mutants completely take away that psyllid. So all signaling pathways that require the psyllid would be affected. This may affect a subgroup of the pathways, right? So there may be a fundamental difference. So we went in and got the, the exact same animals that Val tested, and we did this before they became fat. So these are young animals, similar to our time point one, right? And what we notice is, lo and behold, they do respond to that. So this is in contrast to what Val showed with his animals. And they do not have a thermal regulation uh, defect. So what could possibly be the difference? Now this chart I know is horribly complex, and I apologize. Let me try to walk you through it. I confuse everybody when I do that. <laughs> so if you don't get it, just throw something at me. I'll go through it again. So thanks to stimulus money, I was able to get one of these automated feeding racks. Right. And so what we're looking at is the cumulative food intake uh, during the night cycle, light cycle, so the gray and the dark. And so what we're doing here, this is coming down from time point two going towards time point three. So we're calorically restricting them. We come in in the night, we five o'clock, we throw in the food. And what you'll notice is the mutants here in blue eat everything very, very rapid. Right? Within a three-hour period, they ate all that they have. At this point, they're calorically restricted, so that's as much food as they get. The wild types have a pretty steady snacking over the whole night, if you will, right? So here's where we stop the caloric restriction, right? Um, the wild types, same behavior, right? They, they look normal compared to the other. The mutants have this huge change in their feeding structure. Now, they still eat everything right away, but they're eating much less, which is weird, right? Because they have ad libitum amount of food. And so what we think has happened here is that they receive a signal when we come in at night, 5 o'clock every night, put a food in. Signal. Food is here, time to eat. Well, here at ad libitum fed state, we didn't do that anymore. Right? We, they had a whole big hopper of food, so they didn't get that Pablo signal, if you will, that says it's time to eat. So they have a big drop. And what is surprising, it takes them probably seven or so days to emerge from that entrained feeding behavior, to have a normal feeding structure again, right? So when Val tested his BBS mice after caloric restriction, here's what he did. When we did it, we did that here, where they had a normal feeding structure. So could that possibly explain something? So this is just looking at it a little bit different way. All right, so I probably confused everybody on the last one. Maybe not. Maybe I didn't. Okay, job. So this is basically looking at the food that they take within that first three hours when you put it in. Wild type, very consistently, 20% of their food. Mutants, right after bringing them off of that ad lib uh, feeding period, they you know, eat almost 60% of their food. And then it drops, drops, drops until down about here where they start having that normal feeding structure. So, Val tested here, we're tested there. So what happens if we do our experiment back here? All right, so when they have this abnormal behavior, behold, what we see, this is leptin. This is vehicle. If there is no statistical difference between those. And if anything, leptin-treated animals are actually eating more which is completely opposite of what we would expect. But if you look at the molecular signature, is the pathway firing? Are they responding? They are. You still see FOS in the nucleus of these cells. 
So whatever that entrained behavior is doing, it is strong enough of behavior that it's able to override leptin's ability to say stop. Right? So from what we can see is that, that silly mutants um, are resistant only when you have massive states of obesity in high leptin levels. We don't see any change in thermoregulation, which would indicate a leptin defect. Um, <clears throat> so we know that the primary defect is driving uh, the obesity phenotype in IFT and BBS is, is hyperphagia. Unfortunately, we don't know the pathway. So that's what we've spent <clears throat> the last year or so trying to figure out. And we have a couple other candidate pathways. And I'll, if you allow me to be completely speculative over the next five minutes, uh, take all this with a complete grain of salt. None of it's probably true. This claim. Uh, but we're going to try to prove it, see, or not prove it. Um, <clears throat> so these are the three pathways that we would like to explore. Uh, melanin concentrating hormone uh, receptor 1, FTO uh, uh, phantom story, which some of you may be familiar with, or the possibility it's hedgehog. All right. So MCHR1, um, melanin concentrating hormone receptor 1, is a G-protein coupled <coughs> receptor. Um, when you activate this pathway, it's known to cause hyperphagic behavior. Um, and if you antagonize the pathway, you can keep them lean. So if you have a MCHR knockout animal, it looks absolutely normal until you put it on a high-fat diet, in which case it is actually protected from that high-fat diet. Right. Um, but it also does an awful lot of other things, too, uh, such as stress, anxiety, sleep, uh, motivational behavior, and so Importantly, if you look in the POMC neurons, do they have that receptor on those? Uh, so, and the answer to that is yes. So we know that's important because we know POMC pre, if you use that for the psyllium mutants, you can drive the phenotype. So at least the receptor is in the right neurons uh, to cause the phenotype. Further, uh, Nick Berberi, when he was, he's a postdoc in my group now, but he was in uh, Kirk Mickleton's group at Ohio, um, showed that this receptor in a BBS mutant doesn't go into the psyllium. Now the psyllium are still there, this receptor just doesn't make it, right? So there's another connection. So maybe having the MCH receptor outside of the psyllium allows it to be overly activated or it doesn't get desensitized or something like that. It's kind of the model that we're trying to go with. We also know if you make labeled MCH here with rhodamine, uh, put it on cells that have uh, MCH expressed in them, you can see that it actually binds to the cell. Right? So that's a good thing. Um, we also know um, that it elicits a signal. So here we have these kidney cells that are actually exogenously expressed in the receptor. And what you'll see is that there's a little cilia right there in that red. I don't know if you can see it. Off the side here, we have a pipette that's filled with MCH. Uh, and we're going to measure calcium responses. Right? And lo and behold, what you'll see is those ones that actually have the psyllium actually respond to that. Now, what we're trying to go in is in our mutant cells is to take away the cell and then continue to express the receptor and say, does this response change? Right. So the big question is, if we, so the model is that if you take MCH receptor out of the cell and it becomes hyperactivated. Right. So the idea is now if we prevent that receptor from being activated, either genetically, take it away in the cell mutants, or pharmacologically with an inhibitor, can we correct the phenotype? So this is basically looking at food intake with a pharmacological uh, inhibitor from Merck. And what we can see is we have a big response 
with food intake in the ciliary mutants uh, that is not in the controls. So it kind of argues that. So we have now have the uh, MCHR knockout onto our ciliary mutant backgrounds. Unfortunately, it turned out that the MCH uh, receptor and the Cree that we use to study this are on the same chromosome, so it took us a whole year just to get those two combinations of events to, to get together so we could generate these animals. So we now have them. Uh, within a month or so, we should know whether uh, there's actually anything going on. It also affects things electrically, right? So we've been looking at signaling pathways. How about neuronal activity, right? So what we know in a control animal is that MCH suppresses this basal firing rate. In the absence of cilia, that no longer happens. Right, so maybe it's not this signaling pathway, maybe it's an electrical pathway that we need to be looking at. So I'm very reluctantly going into uh, uh, electrophysiology uh, studies. This is another related story that we've been starting to work up, and those that are in the obesity field may be very familiar with uh, FTO and RP grip light, or MKS5, that's what we know it as. And in a recent GWASH study, several studies have shown that this SNP right here is associated with about seven pounds of extra weight. So the question is, could we be affecting this pathway? And one of the ideas is if you knock out FTO, it's been shown to protect against the beast. So we generated those double mutants. And so since we're running out of time here, I'll make a long story short, no effect. Um, The other side of that is that there's a cilia protein located right here. The question is, is it that protein that's actually involved? Um, and our studies in C. elegans, Jeremy Ritter's studies show that that is actually a, a transition zone protein. Um, so what we would like to know, we have this mutant mouse now, conditional. The trouble with the knockout, the full, full knockout is to leave. We have the conditional. Um, we are now crossing out with the Ponzi Cree. Uh, I will put money on it that that guy would be that. And so I'm not going to tell you the last four or five slides on the hedgehog pathways since we're running late. Uh, Let me just um, recognize the people in yellow here that have done all this work. Of course, I don't do anything in lab anymore, as they keep reminding me. Um, But the guys in yellow have been just instrumental in getting this done, um, including uh, the obesity collaborator, Bob Kesterson, who has worked on the NCHR. Uh, So thank you very much for your attention.